want or not it's up to you <laughs> it's totally uh it's totally uh you know relaxed here so all right guys welcome to the party real people real talk i got a special guest today mr matthew chapman from the uk uh most people know him from mipmaster i've been watching your stuff and using your templates for my own character or my own uh development and my students development for years um it's a real pleasure to have you on man thank you so much well thank you very much for inviting me and uh thanks for uh, supporting mipmaster i appreciate that it's uh, oh absolutely where do you where did you um where did you come up with the idea to like put together this really progressive quite brilliant um way of putting these padros together in sequences where it's easy to lego block with other ones and just really develop certain things people don't really necessarily think of you know like holding a mitts you know for for seasoned instructors they'll know but holding mitts is a is an art in its own really what motivated you to, to start that uh i've always kind of been interested in learning uh about martial arts whatever the martial art and uh, i was training kickboxing muay thai and jeet kune do at the time and i was going to youtube to try and find uh you know pad drills variations ideas concepts and there's not much on there and i was like oh that's very strange like there's loads of training on the technique side of things and maybe like the stretching and the sparring but there just wasn't much on pad drill. so i thought well, I wonder if people would be interested in seeing some of my ideas, some of the concepts I came up with that I developed for my own training and training for my instructors. So I started creating a few YouTube videos, put them up there, and then they started to prove popular. People commented, commented on them, they liked them, people asked for more, so I started creating more content. Um, the thing, main thing I, I wanted to do was create a structured system rather than just me brain dumping a load of stuff, and it's all random and it doesn't fit together my whole concept was to make it very very structured so that you could take elements of one system's pad work and add a different system and it should all interlink and work smoothly and so far it's worked out quite well yeah man i i, I especially really enjoyed and it gave me many ideas my sifu also is someone you know uh sifu joy de la reyes uh he's a great instructor and both of you share the same instructor i believe you also trained under sensei uh eric paulson that's correct yeah and uh so you know, when I started to see, like, I purchased, uh, I can't remember which one, I think it was the Filipino Filipino boxing one. Yeah. And um, it was fantastic because I was doing stuff like that with uh, with Sifu Joey. But when I seen that he had put something together, I was like, oh, man. Because the, um, the intricacies of, like, uh, the different types of punching or using different surface of your hands uh, for striking is not something people – it's like something you can teach at a seminar or if you're working with somebody. But the thing is like, and my goal has always been, how the hell do I do this and apply this um, athletically with power, yeah, yeah. right? So, you know, I found it to be, um, when, I, when I discovered your material, I found it to be really, really useful and helpful. When you're coming up with like, um, for like JKD and trapping and, and Filipino boxing, how do you start to play with that? And how does that kind of look when you're starting to like put it together with your own creativity? Because I know you're extracting from your instructors, but you've also made it your own as well. How's that? What's that process like? Uh, I don't think there's a process. I'm just quite creative with it. <laughs> so it just, I think I've kind of got a semi-photographic memory for martial arts techniques because I can remember techniques I've learned 15, 20 years ago at a seminar you know and i can remember pretty much every technique taught in the seminar and it's just in my brain and i can access it so i think what happens is i've 
35 years of training different systems, doing a, a lot of different styles and training at seminars. The stuff's kind of all in my brain and just working around. And then I'll be having a shower and something will pop into my head or I'll be in the garden and something will pop into my head. So I think it's actually more creative than, than structured. Um, and that's possibly my the thing I'm good at is that creativity. But also, as far as designing pad drills and routines, I, it has to be practical for me. Yes. I, I've trained in a, a lot of systems and, you know, in all systems, there's techniques that maybe you have to be very, very highly skilled or very have great attributes or, you know, just be super sharp to pull off. And I don't consider myself that great a martial artist. So I want stuff that works for the majority of people, not the specialist, you know, the specialist guys who are like the elite. So all of my techniques that I teach in my courses and my, my pedals should work for, you know, most people, whatever their level. So I kind of, the ideas come to me as I'm working on stuff, training with students uh, in the shower, like I said, while I'm driving, I'll, I'll write them down quick or I'll wake up in the night and I'll write them down quick. But then I edit them quite severely to make them actually workable so that you can do the pad drill and then kind of apply it inspiring the same to same to a day ideally yeah i uh, for me like for me I, um when i put the kids to bed and i got the basement to myself that's when i uh, i'll put my music on you know i'll have my little my little thing that helps put me in the mood and i just i do my thing on shadow box when I shadow box, that's for me in my process, when I shadow box, if I end up doing something or discovering something or fumbling onto something that I like, or I feel like, oh man, this this could be useful with some practice. I try to write it down right away because I will forget, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's it's horrible. Or the worst is when you go to a seminar and you you, you learn something you love and you're writing it down and the sweat's falling on the paper. <laughs> and it's just, you know what I mean? So, but yes, I'm definitely one of those people that has to write it down. Yeah, I've got uh, Notebooks, Sorry, notebooks and notebooks of seminar uh, things I've been to, videos I've watched, ideas and concepts. The only problem is like deciphering what I wrote 15 years ago. You know, put your left foot and then your right arm goes and then it's like, I mean, nowadays we go to seminars and we record it on our phones if we're allowed or you buy the video of the seminar that the instructor creates. But back like when we've been training a long time, obviously you have to write stuff down. There's no way of doing it. So. Yeah, some of the stuff 20 odd years ago, I can't understand what I, I wrote down. It's funny you say that because I remember like just going back to the hotel hotel room later the same day, I couldn't understand what the hell I wrote down. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Especially with like Guru Dan, you know, like it's like, okay, we're gonna do this, this, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, like, to, you're not even finishing spelling the words, you're just trying to get like, it just turns in from letters to like random little drawings and errors. That's right, yeah, drawings, like you try and draw it out, so, so yeah. But so this is why it's like in this day and age, it's so um, useful to have these libraries and the material that you put out. How is your, how did you, um, when you started to, cause there's always the moment of like the epiphany or the idea, and then there's the process of finessing it on a person. Yeah. What do you do? What do you do when you start to like, Hey, I got this new stuff I want to work on, get to the gym. I want to work this on with you. How do you, how do you work them up? So uh, I was running a full-time martial arts studio with my friend for 19 years, and I had several very highly skilled students who are quite exceptional in terms of their ability to learn technique and apply it and um, just express it. So what would happen is I'd have private lessons with them. I'd teach them something, and they would just nail it and get it uh, like really, really fast. And then I was like, oh, 
Right. Um, <laughs> so I was kind of forced because obviously you need to go through the basics and repeat, repeat, repeat. But this guy's repetition is important to keep people focused and interested. So it was like I would teach them maybe like a fake jab to a hook technique and they'd nail it instantly. And then I'd be like, right, OK, so what's a variation or a different angle I can throw it at or a setup or a fake first or and I, I just created lots of drills and concepts and ideas for these elite group of students at my school who just were nailing it, you know, uh, and it was refining it. It was like with them, I would go, okay, they can get this, but the way I've taught this doesn't work. The way I've explained this, they don't pick up so well. So I'd try it again, edit it. And it's just the same for any instructor. I think you get in front of a, your class, your crowd, you teach, you realize you explained something not very well. You refine how you explain it or use a different way. Uh, and you watch the reaction in your students, you pick up on that, you improve. So it's just a series of you know showing them drills then getting it so fast i'd be like oh wow that took me like two months to learn you've done it in two weeks excellent so now how can i you know make you do the same stuff but in a slightly different way so you're not realizing you're doing the same stuff so and then the whole system built and built and built into it is about 500 odd pad drills across a variety of systems that's awesome and that, and it's true like Sometimes like, uh, especially when you get like a young athletic kid and you, it's like driving a Ferrari, man. It's just like, okay, like, oh, you get excited. Cause you, now you can push somebody's, they got this young engine, you know, you spend your whole year trying to learn how to drive fast in a shit car. And yeah. as soon as you're a good driver, your car, you know, your car, you driving, you, you had a good car when you were younger, but you didn't know how to drive. You get older, you know how to drive and, you're, and your car's beat up. So it's, right. it's kind of cool to push push the younger cats. And have you had any students that have um, that have competed in like? Yeah, uh, lots, lots of my students competed in different systems. Some did jujitsu. Um, um, some went into a bit of kickboxing. Um, several of my guys went into MMA because that was my area of speciality for a while. Was MMA because uh, I enjoyed competing and training in MMA. So they've done various different things um, to various levels in the UK. So yeah, they've done good. And did you find that your specific group of guys uh, had or attributed attributed to your pa your pad working method um, for their success? I think it helps. I think if you're training, especially MMA fighters or kickboxers or Muay Thai, pad work is quite a big part of what you do, you know, to get them ready to fight because bag works great, power generation, mechanics, you know. Um, sparring is great application, timing, distancing, but the pad works the middle between those two yes. elements, I would say, where you know you're generating force on the bag, hitting it as hard with good clean technique. But where's the element of timing, distance, you know, combination, reaction? That's pad work. So I really focused on good pad work with, the, with my students and the fighters, and also trying to change the pad work based on their opponent that they were getting. Because I've been to a lot of gyms where the coach holds the pads the same way regardless of who you're fighting you know so if you're fighting someone who's six foot nine they'll still hold it at their height so i was like no you've got to modify the pad work to suit the opponent that's coming so for example very obvious is a southpaw you've got to do everything in southpaw which is quite comfortable for me because i'm a lefty but i know a lot of coaches aren't um, you know if the uh, opponent is a charger so they're always pressuring forward with lots of head movement you have to whole pads like that and so by doing that i think i've quite well prepped my fighters for what they're going to get when they stepped in the, the ring or the cage yeah because uh they're either going to deal with the te uh, technical 
person that's going to stay in the pocket, like a Muay Thai guy, or they're going to be a brawler, or they're going to be forward pressure, or they're going to be a counterfighter. That's pretty smart. That learning how to not just get your guy ready for that, but actually hold mitts in that way. It's a simple concept, but I think it's a detail that's really missed by a lot of trainers. Yeah, uh, I've I've worked with a lot of trainers when I was training for fights, and yeah, they. I don't know if they're not aware of it or they just kind of get into the patterns that they're used to just holding mitts and they just want to hold them their way and it makes them feel good but i was i was kind of like well i know my guy's a wrestler so i should be kind of working you know angles footwork stuffing the shot you know sprawling and all of this stuff but i wasn't kind of getting that from some of my trainers necessarily so i try and do that for my own students i try and match and mirror and also like even if i'm working with members of the general public i work to their strengths so if they've got great flexibility then great we're going with the high with the kicks you know if they're not so flexible then we're focusing more on knees and elbows so you just got to tailor your pad work to the person who's in front of you uh, so they have the best experience possible yeah that's very important and also for like um like the mma there's a lot going on there so if i were to be a pad holder right and i've watched like, like I said, my references that I use is guys like, you know, uh, uh, Greg Nelson, Eric Paulson, yeah. guys like that, right? Like, these are the guys I'll go watch. Even, like, some of the shoot fighting from uh, Sifu Yori Nakamura. I'll watch these guys, and uh, I'll try to watch how they do power work, plus whatever I've learned from my Sifu Joey. But when you're holding if – if I was a guy who was training a guy for power work, and I want to simulate the clinch at the same time, but I also want to give him um, – like, have him punch and stuff like that – how do you how do you work that in a way like for Muay Thai you have the tie pads but you can flip them around so that you get the clinch and then flip yeah. them. How do you do that for MMA? How does that look for MMA? Um, either you need a kind of small focus mitt that you know doesn't take up too much space so that you can easily pummel like you would be in a wrestling clinch where they can slip through the gap. Yeah, like the micros, those micro pads. Yeah, micro pads. Or oh, there's a, a really cool set of mitts called Roski mitts. R O S K Y, and they're they're a pair of focus mitts that are very small and they have a wrist strap. What it means is as you're hitting the pads, you can flick the pads down and the pads land on your forearm. What? So you can clinch and then you can flick them back up and go back to striking. So the Roski uh, MMA mitts are very, very cool. Oh, they're, wow. I've never heard of US that. company. I've very never good. heard of those. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're really useful for MMA training. But otherwise, yeah, it's just a very, it's a smaller pair of focus mitts than I generally hold. For someone training boxing or muay thai because i want to be able to get into the clinch pummel uh do takedowns defend takedowns uh, ground and pound transition submission so it's just choosing the right bit of kit i would say now when you do like when you prep somebody for mma do you work the progression from like um closing a distance with strike into clinch striking within the clinch getting a takedown positional take like do you work that progression or do you kind of just again tailor it to who the guy's fighting, where you think you'll spend the most time and just focus on that? It depends on the student. If the student has actually got a fight coming up, it's totally tailored to their opponent. If a student is learning MMA, well, all, all MMA fights start on opposite sides of the ring cage. So we start with standing work, distance control, you know, uh, making sure we try and get a dominant angle of attack, what I call low risk, high percentage strikes. So things like jab, low inside, round kick, uh, calf kicks, uh, you know, not risky. I'm not going to start straight out bang with a Superman punch. <laughs> They're just going to duck you and take you down. So I start with that, and then it's a progression of what are they most likely to encounter in an MMA fight, especially at an amateur level. 
then at like a semi-pro level, then at a pro level, there's a progression of techniques, you know. Most amateur fights tend to be quite raw and untechnical and there's a lot of missing and they tend to be one with either one person like landing a crazy big haymaker or like a scramble with a guillotine or something simple like that, you know, just pure strength, raw powers and techniques. So I focus on those for like that level and then it gets progressively more complex as they move up through the ranks. Now, the other cool thing that people might not know is not only have you provided this great syllabus for over like multiple arts, like you say, MMA, kickboxing, dirty, uh, dirty boxing, Filipino boxing, but you're also helping instructors put out their material. I, I thought that was like, because I already been watching from Mintmaster. And then when I saw Joey was like uh, doing workshops, he was like telling me, he's like, hey, you should check this guy out. And then I was like, oh man, this is the Mintmaster guy. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought that was really cool that you actually, you know, help elevate your fellow instructor. Speak to me on, if you can, what motivated you to start doing that? and teaching people how to fish so to speak yeah, um because i kind of love martial arts instructors i think you know we do a really important job we help people we give so much of ourselves for decades to people you know we, we really care and I, I respect that and i just wanted to help instructors because you know we do an amazing job i think um and it's also a lot of instructors struggle with the technology side of things and they, they you know we spend our whole lives focusing on getting kicked and punched and wrestled <laughs> and the tech side of things is a weak area and that's an area i'm quite strong in so i wanted to help them for that i also wanted to help them because uh, a lot of struggle uh, martial arts instructors struggle financially because the i believe the model of being a full-time martial arts instructor is kind of broken it's yeah it works well when you're young so, you know, you, you start your martial arts school when you're 20, like I did, and you do your next 5, 10, 15 years of competing and building up your school and your fight team and taking care of people. And, and, and then kind of you get to 45, 50, and your body starts to break a little bit and everything takes longer to heal and you haven't got quite as much energy and then you get a little bit older. And I find that instructors, once they kind of get past 50, they don't have any sort of backup they don't have any other way of earning an income they don't have any other, other way of um they don't have savings generally they're not particularly great financially they tend to reinvest into their business and take care of other people more than they take care of themselves and i know lots of instructors who are 60 plus and don't have any savings don't have anything in, to back them up what that means is they're going to have to keep teaching till they die which is fine because that's cool. Let's <laughs> love it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they might want to take a week week off and like have a bit of a break <laughs> or go on holiday or visit family. Yeah. And if your only way of earning an income is to turn up and physically teach classes, I think that's a problem. It's yeah. great because it's your passion, but it's it's almost like a trap. You can't escape it. You love it, but you can't escape it. And I wanted to help instructors create online resources that they could share with other people, their students and other people around the world, which would also earn them some income separate from physically having to go to the school every day and teach. Uh, and some of my clients that I've worked with have, have you know, done really, really well with that. They have this separate income stream now. They get to teach what they love to people around the world, you know, which is great. It opens up more doors. You know, if I hadn't set up Midmaster, I wouldn't be chatting to you today. So it's like a whole, 
it's only positive in my eyes, but I know a lot of people are like, well, you can't teach martial arts online. And I'm like, well, you can, because <laughs> the last year has proven that you can teach martial arts online. Is it as good as actually getting in a dojo with someone? No, of course not. But it's, you know, it's the next best thing to physical training is, is, is online training. So I just wanted to help instructors with that, like to, to take the next step, to free up their time a little bit, to generate income separate from teaching daily, things like that. Well, I think it's brilliant because like there's a, there's a, there's a certain audience that you're going to really capitalize on because there's guys who like, for example, you were way ahead of the curve because when COVID hit, you know, I'm sure people started looking online for material. Yeah. And you've already had a library. Yeah. You're right. well, well ahead of the game. And the beauty part is, like, I, for me, I've only done one thing, and I shared it with you for your feedback. I've only done one thing where it was like an hour long of techniques that I learned. That was my goal. It was my try at it. I intend to do more, but I intend to do it better. But, um, like, that still makes money. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that people don't realize. It's not like you go to a seminar, you teach it, you get paid, you go home. But this is like, this could continuously make money, continually uh, produce revenue, and it's and it's not limited to where it's sold. Like it, I've sold it, I never thought it would sell as far as it did, but with yeah. the right marketing and the right advertising, it, it can do well. So this is something where you can build up a library that potentially, like you say, could be making money years later but oh yeah shit i forgot i even made that yeah and also like uh, with the lockdowns that are happening around the world i've had clients who have had a lockdown in their own country so no martial arts happening but they can still sell in the us canada australia europe because those places are open so it protects you against these random things that seem to be happen and the other thing i would say is i think it's important for instructors to record a legacy of their martial arts because we're going to die and when we die, if we don't digitally record our contribution to the martial arts, our expression of the martial arts, our personality in martial arts, it will literally disappear when we die with us. It will be gone forever. A lot of instructors say, yeah, but my students will continue to teach. But they're going to teach their variation, their way of doing it. If you've invested your entire life like we have to martial arts, you should record that because it has true, like infinite value, you know. And then our martial art, Bruce Lee, you know, recorded bits and pieces of what he did. But if, imagine if he recorded every wow. single training session he'd done, every single sparring session he'd done, every single class he ever taught, every single, you know, if we were back in Chinatown watching his class. There'd be a lot less whining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it would be like, now, how important, how valuable would that be as a historical resource? Now, we're not Bruce Lee, but we can record what we, have contributed to the martial arts, our own passion, our own way of, of teaching. I think it's important to leave a legacy that's recorded in a digital format so it can last forever. Honestly, I just, I, I, I'm doing it because it took me a long time to be in front of a camera. It took me a long time to be comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. Now it's like, I just tell whoever's recording, like, wait till I'm busy training and I, didn't get, I don't care that you're there, then start yeah. recording. That's it. That's the best way. Yeah. And, uh, but I tell you, man, it's cool because you sit back and you watch it a few years later and you know, we're always our biggest critic, right? Yeah. You know, I gotta be faster. I gotta be stronger. But when you get older and you, your body, like you say, the body changes, you kind of like, and you look back at these clips, you're like, man, what the fuck was I complaining about? Look, I yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? So it kind of teaches you to appreciate 
We always want to strive to be better, but it appreciates what you were once capable of doing. And Absolutely. when you're an old man having a beer with your mates, you're like, oh, I was a legend. Look at this. I was a beaut. You know what I mean? You can have fun and watch that stuff. And also for your kids to know who you were. Like, this is what daddy used That's to do. Literally about to say, like it's a it's a legacy for your children, right? Who may or may not get into martial arts, but they can watch their dad, you know, be passionate and teach and have fun and command respect from people, and you know, I think that's cool. I think that yeah. would be nice to see. I got nephews that live out in Newfoundland. Uh, actually, they're great nephews. It's my niece's kids. Uh, I was a pocket uncle. I'm the youngest of ten, right? So, but they live out in Newfoundland and they're doing their taekwondo and stuff like that. And uh, my niece tells me, she's like, yeah, when they see you do your, your stuff, it motivates them to do it. And I'm watching them do it, and they're doing this thing. And it's like, shit, I started something because martial arts wasn't really done by anybody in my family. Like, I'm, oh, the, first, I'm the first of 10 in my family to actually train martial arts, like, my life. And now, oh, I, have, and now I have nieces and nephews who are, like, taking it up. So it's like, I feel like I started something that way. So it is, it is, something, like, it is something you want to hold on to. Um, let's speak a little bit about your, your martial arts background. How did you, how did you start? What was your base art and what motivated you to even train martial arts? Uh, enter the dragon. <laughs> Classic yes. generation. So I saw that when I was young and I was like, oh, I have to do that. That's so cool. Uh, so then I tried to find a Kung Fu school in my town. There wasn't one at that time, but there was a ninjutsu school in my town at the time. So I was uh, 10 years old, so I started doing ninjutsu when I was 10. Now, I don't know if you know anything about ninjutsu, but it's fantastic when you're 10 years old because you do crazy stuff. We used to climb buildings. We used to uh, do horseback riding and shoot bows and arrows off of horseback at 10 years old. Use throwing, yeah, use throwing stars, do night wow. ex ex excursions and try and sneak into buildings at night. We did <laughs> like I was 12 years old. I would have signed up for that school now. Yeah, I know. It's like being James Bond at 10. So I was <laughs> amazing. So I did that for a decade. And then what happened was we had a Kratika, who was a brown boat, who came to visit the school and did some sparring with us. And he basically just slapped me about. And I was like, oh, that's great. You need those moments, man. Yeah. So I was like, well, I need to, because I don't think ninjutsu is personally, from my experience, strength is the, uh, the unarmed combat side, but their weapon stuff. The, the whole, the, all the other stuff is amazing, but I didn't find the weapon, um, unarmed stuff worked for me personally. So then I started looking at JKD, and by that time, Kung Fu had started to come in, so I started training a little bit of Wing Chun, and then I found a kickboxing instructor who recommended a JKD slash Thai boxing instructor, and I just spent the next 10 years training with him every day, uh, just training the stuff four hours a day every day for 10 years <laughs> which was awesome who was uh, that who was that if you don't mind me asking who was your first introduction into jeet kune do so his name was anton saint james he was a, a thai boxing instructor under master toddy uh, a wing chung instructor as well and a filipino martial arts instructor so he had uh, a good blend of you know the base arts and uh yeah, he was amazing, really great coach. He just trained me for free for a decade because <laughs> he obviously saw that I was into it. Um, and then he kind of recommended that I go and see Bob Breen in London because Bob Breen was like the godfather of JKD, first man to bring Dan Anastanto over to the UK. Wow. Um, so I went to London to train with Bob Breen for three to five years. Uh, loved that, you know, getting exposed. And that's the first time I met Eric Paulson because Bob got Eric over for a seminar. And Eric was the first person I'd met who could strike and grapple with no break. Like, 
There was no gap between it. It was just smooth. Everything was smooth. And I just said, after the seminar, I was like, I've got to come to LA to train with you. That was amazing. So then I went out to LA several times with my training partner to train with uh, Sensei Eric. And that was like a, a just, just amazing to train. One on one And then the MMA boom was starting to take off. And I was like, I should really test my skills because I've been training at this point probably 12, 15 years. You know, and I, I thought I should test myself. I didn't like the idea of doing Muay Thai because Muay Thai is hard, man. <laughs> Muay Thai is a brutal one. Do you think Muay Thai is harder than MMA? Yeah, way, way tough. Because in Muay Thai, you have to essentially stand in front of each other and kick each other and punch each other and knee each other and know each other until one of you falls down. Hooray. With MMA, if I'm getting beaten up on my feet, I just shoot, put you on your back. Right, but I mean, I don't know. That's, that's kind of like... I understand what you're saying because yes, Muay Thai is like sit there and take and give, but mm -hmm. MMA is like it is physically exhausting to wrestle someone, to fight someone, yeah. wrestling you. But I would say you get less damage in MMA, and also in MMA you can do this if you, you want to give up at any time. <laughs> so, I mean, you still see it in elite fights; like people will tap when they've just had enough. You yeah. can't do that in Muay Thai. There's no tapping in Muay Thai. Yeah. So Muay Thai to me is like a much harder, more brutal, harder on the body art than MMA is. So I didn't do Muay Thai. My Muay Thai coach was always like, oh, you're being a pussy. You should do Muay Thai. Gotta <laughs> <laughs> like, love those coaches, eh? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he's, he's kind of telling the truth. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. But then MMA came along and I was like, oh, this is cool. So I had ways of solving a problem in a fight. Because in Muay Thai, if you're not, if you haven't, if you're not going to beat them technically, you're going to lose, you know, and then it's about will and heart and but all, all about, you're still going to lose. So I've moved into MMA, started doing MMA, loved um, the training of the fights, but didn't love fighting. So I actually enjoyed the whole process of getting myself there mentally and physically and the, the strategy and the tactics. I would get into the cage, I'd win my fight, and then I'd be like, like I didn't get any emotional reaction from fighting at all. There was no joy. I wasn't like pumped up. I was just like, okay. But if I teach a seminar next weekend, I'd be so excited and loving yeah. what we're doing. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm not actually enjoying fighting. I, I, I much prefer teaching and helping people. That's what, who I am. So I just kind of, uh, I did my MMA fights and I moved on to coaching full time. I kind of, um, like for me, I started martial arts late. I started martial arts when I was 22 years old. Uh, prior to that, I just used to try wrestling moves from WWF on the kids in the neighborhood and get in trouble. That was kind of my thing. Or, you know, my brothers would, you know, wrestle with me. So it is training, believe it or not. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, like I started late. I started in traditional martial art and competed a lot that way. Continuous sparring, point sparring, fighting and all that stuff. Um, when I got older, though, it was the same with you. Like I have, I had a problem with anxiety attacks, right? So like I would have to train in the gym, to spar in the gym. No problem. You know, um, no problem. Uh, the only kind of fighting that I do that I don't get um, like gun shy is full contact stick fighting. Interesting. <laughs> I know I'm retarded because the thing with me is I can punch, I can kick, I can wrestle. And like the adrenaline rush I get that I have a weapon in my hand and somebody else has a weapon in my hand. I'm too busy to I'm too busy paying attention. And I can smash with a stick. Right, interesting. To be worried about anything else. But when it came to like wanting to do like uh, 
Muay Thai or boxing, I, I, I'd, go to, I'd go to throwdowns or in-house stuff, you know, close the doors, do it. I would be okay with that. But if I were to do it in front of lights and like people sitting in a, in seats, right. I just, I am one of those guys that like, I know. And there's other guys I've seen professional fighters who also went through this and I kind of seen guys at that level also go through. It was kind of like, I don't feel so bad anymore. Like David yeah. and stuff like that. It is yeah. a real thing. Yeah. But the training, the training, I'd love it, but I'd hate the closer. I like if I were going to compete, it would just paralyze me. And that's something that I, I've always had to deal with. That's, but that's the thing about martial arts, right? There's always more, more than one thing about it. There's the internal, the external stuff like that. But like you were saying, I had more fun just actually training and grinding in the gym. Yeah. Then, you know, the competing part wasn't for me. I just wanted to make sure I made sure I was like, I told myself, it's like, if I'm not going to really worry about competing too much, make sure you're sparring the guys who are winning the titles in the gym. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Because if you can hold your own with them, you're good. You don't have to wear a belt. My whole purpose was I want to make sure that if I got attacked on the street, I was proficient enough where I would be comfortable saying I'm going to make it home. You know, yeah. we never know, but that's the mentality, right? Yeah. Uh, and the anxiety thing, I, I understand because a lot of my training partners had quite strong anxiety throwing up before a fight, you know, on the toilet nonstop before a fight. But I'm, I had very low anxiety. My levels of anxiety naturally are very, very low. I'm quite a chilled out person. So I wasn't getting too worked up. And before every fight that I ever had in a cage, I used to watch the first 15 minutes of Saving Private Ryan because you know that that was real that shit happened yeah. people walked onto a beach into machine gun fire and just got slaughtered in the hundreds and thousands and had to go up the beach while you know their friends were dropping dead next to them and getting blown up and still continue to go forward and fight and then i thought you know you watch the first 15 minutes of saving private ryan and and you know the, the, the veterans who'd been there said yeah that was actually what it was like you go what am i worried about exactly I'm in a little cage with a ref who's going to save me if i'm in real trouble and you know i've got my friends there who are watching if i get knocked out well i get knocked out but the that used to lower my anxiety right down because it's mma luckily is you know it's regulated it's controlled you are fairly matched based on weight and experience level most of the time it's kind of safe-ish for a combat sport <laughs> somewhat so, I, I wasn't particularly nervous about fighting because I wasn't going to get gunned down by Germans on a beach. It's a weird thing, but it really helped me overcome any sort of fear I had because it was compared. Com and those are teenagers, those are kids getting off those boats, you know, comparing it to that. I was like, Fat, I'll just go and fight. Yeah. That makes sense. But like there are people out there that they, they are their worst enemy. Like for me, it wasn't it wasn't even that I was going to get really hurt. It was like. Fuck, I can't lose. I don't want to deal with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Um, or it was just like I didn't trust myself to perform what I know I'm possible of doing because mm -hmm. I just I couldn't get over this this feeling of fro being frozen, not yes. being not being in the moment. You because you competed, you know. I mean, I, and I've competed, but not at the, you know not nothing prestigious. But when you're fighting, you you have nobody should exist outside the person who you're fighting i mean you're conscious of where the ref is but you're everything else is just noise and blur you know yeah. and if you can't be in the moment and focus on the task at hand and you're too worried about all oh, this or that you're done 
Yeah, but I think if you got if you got into the uh, the fight and had a big crowd watching you, I think all of that would have taken care of itself. Because the first time you get punched in the face, yeah, you know, I don't <laughs> forget that you're like, Poom. you're just yeah. like, oh, you hit me. So then you're like working tough. Unless that first shot knocked you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, Superman punch, like, gosh. Oh. Um, so I think uh, I think those types of this is kind of like the whole what if situation which fighters have to deal with what if i get embarrassed what if you know you know i get knocked out in nine seconds like ben, ben Askren did what if it's hard isn't it yeah it's, it's a hard thing to overcome but yeah because i i didn't have much anxiety in general i i, I just focused on the fight but i wasn't enjoying fighting i i, I didn't really enjoy it. even i won my fights i didn't enjoy enjoy it at all really I was like, cool, let's go and have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> I think it takes like the right instructor too to trust the right instructor because I think sometimes, um, you know, people jump in it too fast and then yeah. things happen that dramatize them. Or yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great point because I had had at that point 12 to 15 years martial arts experience and I trained in Los Angeles with Eric Paulson several times. So I was way ahead of the game in terms of what the UK guys were doing. It, this was so far back in the history of MMA in the UK that there was no cages in the UK at this point because no one had built one and we couldn't ship one over. So all the fights were done in boxing rings. Yeah. So this is way, way back. And the, the way the fights were built was this guy's a kung fu guy versus this guy who's a jiu-jitsu. So it's really early, like where it's still style versus style, which is not there anymore. Um, so I was fighting like kung fu guys and boxers and pure jiu-jitsu guys and and because i had been training with Eric Paulson I was very confident in my skills because you know he's one if not one of the best MMA coaches ever and you know he'd done bare knuckle MMA before the UFC had come around and competed at the highest level and fought in Japan so I think that's probably where my confidence came from the fact that I'd been training a long time I've been training with really good people um that helped so yeah maybe if i'd been in just a little gym in the uk and was just training uh you know my one system it might have been different yeah so where uh, as far as like um other instructors how many other instructors kind of like eric paulson motivated you to kind of to go and seek them out and and get some training out of them who are other influential martial artists that have helped your development as a as, as an instructor and uh, you know as a coach uh, it's too many. <laughs> I mean, I was a, a, a seminar junkie, seminar hall for a long time. <laughs> we all go through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was attending a different seminar every weekend, you know, um, all of the JKD um, crew, Rick Young, Mark McFan, all of those guys. Um, and then I'd go and do kickboxing and Muay Thai seminars and jiu-jitsu seminars. And Marco Huis came over and did a seminar. He impressed me because he was his training methods were very advanced at the time um, for what we were doing. And he's obviously a physical beast and a specimen. And when you're like 20 and you see like this beast, Jack. Jesus. So <laughs> that was really, really impress, uh, impressed me. Um, but as far as training goes, um, Phil Norman, who's another full instructor on the Guru Dan, who's in the UK, he's developed a new striking system called Ghost, which is about being very elusive. Um, and it's the only systematized and organized system I've ever seen on elusiveness, as in 
don't get hit put yourself in a position where you're in a superior position then hit them then don't get hit again um and so i saw some of this stuff years ago and i was like wow that stuff looks really really cool so i went down to train with him um and did his um, first instructor program with his first group of instructors and ghost is a clever system it's like it's genius stuff in terms of kind of what he's done is he's taken some of the principles of Largo Mano stick work and applied them in an empty hand perspective but then evolved it way past you know way past that wow. but I think that's the, the fundamental concepts uh and I love that that's a, a fantastic system so Ghost was really and Phil Norman was really influential um obviously Bob Breen he's like considered one of the best JKD guys in Europe uh, and is one of the best JKD guys in Europe and he's really technical and really analytical and really detailed about what he teaches um, and very focused on making things work um, and then I went out to Thailand several times to train and there's a coach out at Tiger Muay Thai oh, nice. called Yod back in the day this is when Tiger Muay Thai had two rings only yeah wasn't this massive mega center that it is now this was early days and yod was like he's one of the few people i sparred with where i couldn't touch him at all like at all nothing wow. couldn't touch him uh he just played with me beat me up sweet me and, and laugh and then just do it again and i was like oh wow okay and now yod trains or used to train gsp and his tie bolt thing so it's obviously he was quite a special coach because GSP selected him to be his Thai boxing coach. Um, so he was amazing to train with as well. Um, so those are like the main guys, Anton St. James, Bob Breen, uh, Phil Norman, um, Crew Yod as well, has been very influential to me. That's awesome. When you were training the when you were training the Muay Thai and then you're training also JKD, when you competed in MMA, which did you incorporate a lot of the like because most people who are doing mma they'll just you know it's the, the, the tie kicks did you incorporate any of like the kicks or snap kicks that you would have you'd see yeah i preferred them and i'm still a fan of snap kicks because i think they're harder to catch mm. because you're not committing your hip to it as much so my like high percentage low risk techniques to start an mma fight focus on more snapping kicks rather than the one where you bury your shin in it and rotate your hips because it's very hard to sprawl when your hips are fully rotated and it allows like a wrestler to actually like take the kick grab hold of you and start to dump you down so i was always snapping out like mcgregor's front kick and a, a flick round out kick like popular rose uh, recently you know not out oh yeah. yeah she's awesome i think that type of kicking works it, it no it's not better it's they they need both you need the snap kicks the quick kicks that they can't block that you know disrupt and you do need the power kicks that get the job finished you know when they're in a position where to throw them but i was a big fan of yeah snap kicking and um, and not over committing my hips because i you know thinking about the takedown yeah you have to in mma yeah not, i try to do that because i try to take like the you know the snap kicks or even like savat uh savat type kicks yeah the, point of the shoe and even if you don't have your shoe on you can curl your toes back so you hit the ball yeah, yeah. I, I found it super important because you say you, you, you can snap it it's less committed and it's kind of like your jab to your cross i tell my students like think of the those types of kicks as like uh heat seeking missiles yeah and think of what your tie kick is like an atomic bomb <laughs> yeah i like it <laughs> so it's like you know you, you're using both uh, i also think using um like western boxing and then changing it and adding in those hammer fists 
it's kind of like the same kind of idea because they're not so um, it's not so common where people are gonna expect like if you throw a cross and somebody misses hitting him with that back fist you know can catch him uh, off guard do you think because uh, I'm starting to see a rise in it but I'd like to get your perspective um, do you are you starting to see a little bit more of this like JKD FMA flavor slowly kind of like coming out in MMA yeah because several of the coaches uh, of the high profile coaches are JKD or yes. influenced by JKD so you know obviously Greg Nelson Eric Paulson but even um, Greg, Greg Jackson yeah uh, was trained in JKD or was trained in JKD so you can see that with John Jones side kick to the knee as a bleak kicks that he uses um, and Donald Cerrone's uses of guntings and destructions and stuff it's all there um, you know it's the same stuff but um, I think because of these these level of coaches have started to teach and develop fighters you're seeing more and more of it appear and I think that's really really good I think JKD is a, a great base system for an MMA you know if you want to go into MMA being able to you know understand footwork range the conceptual approach to, to technique strategic technique I think non-telegraphic motion is a thing that's missing from a lot of fighters ESP had amazing non-telegraphic motion you just go bam and he'd hit him with his jab and then he'd be on the takedown yeah. um, so all of that sort of stuff you know the understanding of the five ways of attack and how they apply you know I think it's very 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 useful um for mma so yeah i think it's becoming probably more popular as a jkd guy from one guy to another I, there is these you know there is certain groups and camps in jkd and you know some guys are like you know all oh, concept or no this isn't jkd <laughs> you got the guys who are like oh mma is not jkd or bruce lee did not uh jkd is not the grandpa and all this different stuff the problem is with me is I see so much of it being used, whether it looks exactly what the textbook showed, but even just in principle, why do you think if, you know, most people will label it, oh, this is just MMA, but al although it is MMA, a lot of the ideology and principles came around what Bruce was doing that he called JKD and, and his later JKD. Why do you think Jeet Kune Do never really got, it's kind of like the, the art that's more popular than the traditional art, but it's not seen as you know as proven as the combative sports why do you think that's kind of happened that's a great question i'm not sure probably because there hasn't been a standout jkd only fighter who's come through and exploded onto the mainstream do you know what i mean you know the gracies came out and they proved in the cage that jiu-jitsu was a superior grappling system and they won, you know. And if there was a JKD guy who was in the UFC in the early days and poked Hoist in the eye and <laughs> stopped him shooting <laughs> and won the UFC, then it would. So I think it's that whole, you know, you need a. Obviously, Bruce Lee was so charismatic and amazing teacher and great on film that you know he would have kept. That would have it would have grown and grown and grown if he'd stayed alive, wouldn't it? It would have only got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know. And his dreams to have a chain of schools across the US. It would have been worldwide. It would have been massive if Bruce had stayed uh, alive because he was big into self-promotion, wasn't he? Yeah, I think JKD would look totally different than what what we know it as today. Oh yeah, of course he would have evolved. He's, he was an evolving human being, wasn't he? He was already training the grappling arts and you know getting into that. So it would have been very similar to MMA. I would have, would have think. Would have I would have loved to seen him have a camp 
and have fighters coming out of his school competing in MMA. Oh, that'd been cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. I think that would have yeah. been. I think he definitely would have been studying with the Gracies. But even you say the Gracies, like here's the funny thing, and you know when you get a chance, watch it if you don't remember it already. But if you go and watch the first UFCs when Hoist Gracie was fighting, he was using the low line shin kick, yeah, to keep him at bay, and then he would step in with the knee up and crash in to get an anchor. Like yeah. these are these are JKD concepts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're watching a jujitsu guy employ them. So it's I, I laugh because um, it's been there since the start. It's just never I find like the technique or the thing has never been uh, given to to that source. But then again, JKD is not a style itself, right? It's yeah. So I think that could be part of it, right? Yeah, I think also you know the um, anyone who's studying real fighting is going to come to the same sort of conclusion. Yeah. You know, if it's a one-on-one -on -one fight between two um, people who are kind of roughly the same size, they're going to work out what's the most efficient way for me to enter, right? So do I enter with a big right hook? No, I get countered. Do I enter with a jab? Oh, that seems to work quite well. Do I enter with a uh, fully committed round ice kick? Oh, no, I'm on my back. Do I enter with a stomp kick to the knee? Oh, that seems to work quite well. Do I enter open and get punched in the face? Or do I enter with a crash and cover as I... As, so the Gracies were testing all this in the gyms of Rio and the streets of Rio. Oh, Joe Storming. Yeah, so, and Bruce was testing it with his students and sparring it. So anyone who's testing these types of things is going to come to the same co conclusion, like a lead sidekick to the knee is a good way of stopping someone moving forward, interrupting their beat so you can close. And if you close, you want to close behind stuff or crash and cover and c cover up as much as you can until you get to the clinch. And if you're a clinch guy, like the Gracies are, you, you do your business, take them down and run through the sequence and choke them out. Now, over in the UK right now, I don't know what the state is for the lockdown and stuff like that, but do you suspect there's going to be a huge boom again uh, when seminars start circling? Because yeah, uh, I think it's a good chance for like people who have been stuck at home to buy the material and practice the material. And like I say, like the sweet spot is not the beginner per se, who doesn't even know how to hold a pad but for guys who have been in the gym and have a few buddies they bang around in the gym with and they get a hold of this shit, it's like oh this is easy oh what's the drill blah, 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 blah. okay let's do it and they can get a great workout or even instructors to spark ideas on how to how to give them new material to work off the pads with yes but now that you get like a following because of these times and things open back up are you looking forward to circle uh to to doing circuits of, of uh, seminars and stuff like that again? Yeah, I love it. It's, uh, it's the only thing I miss from teaching uh, at my school is obviously the actual teaching. It's all like doing pad work and filming stuff and that's all cool. But it's great to go out and teach at a seminar. And I generally find that seminar attendees are all more open-minded and willing to learn from you than sometimes your own students are. <laughs> so like your students, they've kind of seen your, your spiel, they've seen your stuff. Some of them are like yawning while you're trying to teach them about the importance of a jab. Uh, but as you go to a seminar, everyone's like, they're paying attention. They, they're invested, they're interested, they pay their money, they want to get the most from the session. So I find seminars rewarding to do, they're fun to do. Um, I enjoy interacting with people. Sometimes you go to places and they kind of look at you like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. And you have to like, show them that you know something yeah. as you go to seminars and they're like really open and friendly and it's it's quite fun and you have a good good time there I, I love teaching seminars it's one of my favorite things it's funny you say that i remember i was invited i went to this there's a place uh here where i live in in the province i live in it's called north bay 
And there's a, there's a gentleman in Kyoshi, Chris Marceau. He's a fantastic person. And uh, he hosts these um, this martial art kind of retreat thing. And everybody who's in the area, and even people from out of the area, they all come. They rent a hall. Everybody trains. You get to sample all these different arts. There's everything there from like Sambo to Hapkido to everything, right? And uh, it's like the spirit of JKD. It's like the buffet table. So... <laughs> So I remember going and I had such a great time. And when I was there, he asked, you know, next year you come back, you can share. So I was like, this was, that was a huge thing for me. Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah, of course, you know, and then I remember getting excited, getting up to it. And I like had all these, all this material I'd written down that I was going to share, you know, like a fucking <laughs> novel. And, uh, and uh, then I go to, and I go to teach. And I remember um, the first uh, floor he gave me is like, okay, this will be here. This will be here. And he's like, all the black belts will be up here with Mark for Jeet Kune Do. And I was like, oh, shit. He's giving me all the black belts right away. Oh, great. So, and I stand there and I remember these guys looking at me and some of them were like, this guy's the teacher. And they were like smirking. Yeah. And I remember, man, I got so pissed. I got so Like I wanted to fight somebody. I got so pissed. I was like, yeah, okay. Fuck this shit. So I just showed him like the nastiest shit I like. What, what I'd want what, what I would want to do in my head to the person who smirked yeah, that's yeah. What I thought. Yeah. and um, it went really well and <laughs> yeah, that's right I went really well and I just remember like that that vibe and it's funny because like you say your student comes with you and they yawn and everything because they have you all the time but when they get to see other people react to your shit like yeah oh, this is normal for me but these guys are like so it kind of gives your student um, an appreciation for what they've learned. Because right. not everybody's getting it, right? So I like seminars for that. I like seeing how my students interact with other people. And it's a great chance to take your guy who's going to be your guy to kind of start having him teach. And, but uh, what do you think the main difference is on seminar seminar type format of teaching as opposed to classroom? <laughs> so yes, you basically all instructors if we're honest we take our sexiest stuff <laughs> all our coolest moves and the stuff that we know we can do to a very high level uh and then we leave all the basics in the classroom so you know if i was um teaching a seminar like i teach in the classroom it would be like let's get your stance right then let's get your head movement then let's get your footwork going and work that all right let's work that for three hours <laughs> boring seminar important because if you can't get your footwork you can't right. get means to do anything and escape but um yeah we all we all try and do the most exciting sexiest moves we can at seminars and uh, i have a little sequence that i seem seems to work quite well when i teach seminars um that people seem to enjoy but i do tailor my seminars to the group i'm going to so if i'm teaching taekwondo group for example i'm not going to teach them to kick because they can kick better than i can i'm going to teach them to box because their hands won't be close to yeah, yeah. and then if i'm teaching a you know a, a kickboxing group i'm not going to teach them necessarily kickboxing i'm going to teach them trapping and clinching because that's an area that they don't explore because they get broke broke by them so i always try and introduce something that's maybe unfamiliar to the audience so that they get a good learning level you know they learn from the seminar yeah expose yeah expose them to the areas uh, that they may not be familiar with because no one martial art has all the answers that's a lie. JKD does. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> so, but the thing is, it's like, it's almost like you have to prove like whatever it is your focus is um, with regards to what you're teaching at the seminar. Like you have that topic or that, you know, the nucleus in your head. 
you are limited. You have a limited window to kind of prove these things. Yeah. So it's like you have to you have to show them what they're working towards is worth trying to attain. Yeah. Without yeah. making it so repet rep repetitive and monotonous, it's a very hard thing to do, especially when like uh, like you say you don't know what the crowd is like because it is one thing if a Taekwondo group calls you and says. Hey Matthew, we'd like you to come out and show us, um, you know, how to set up uh, our kicks with 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 this. Mm. You kind of they kind of just made it easy for you because they know what they know what they want. But yeah. when it's kind of just like, okay, we just want you to come. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, okay, well, what do you want to learn though? I really thought and it was the simplest thing, but um, I love when Guru Dan he just tells people, okay, guys, three rounds shadow boxing. Let's just uh, shadow box. I want to see what I'm working with. I do that as well with pad work. So I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah. I go, so guys, uh, you know, I'm here to teach you pad work, but I need to see where you're at in order to see if I have anything to give you. You know, I might not have anything to show you. So, yeah, let's do a round each on the pads. And I walk around and I go, oh, right, yeah, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work on that with a pad work. So, yeah. So when you tell them to do that with the power work, are you just telling them, okay, guys, just freestyle whatever with yeah, your partner? Yeah, absolutely. Freestyle, nice and light, nothing too crazy because they're warming up. Keep the power down. And I just walk around and I can see, okay, so we need to work on guard with this group or I need to work on footwork or setups or fakes or, you know, combinations or, or anything that p captures my eye. I usually have a theme because someone says I want to learn or work on MMA pad work. No problem. Here's the sequence. But if they say do whatever you like, I watch what they're doing. And because I've been teaching and training for 35 years, I can just tailor the seminar to, to whatever they want. But one thing I'd say about seminars, if you're guys are watching who, who are maybe new to teaching seminars is um what i attended an anderson silver seminar once that was really really good not so much because of what he taught but because of how friendly and open he was so he came into the seminar and then he went around and shook every single person's hand in the yeah. seminar, like 50 people all the way around before the seminar started and it was like thank you for coming like this is like one of the best well probably the best MMA fighter of all time and he's there thank you for coming and he was so friendly and respectful like any ego that you could have had or any attitude like it just it's just dissipated and I think when another thing that is quite good for people who are teaching seminars is when ignorance is mutual confidence is king mm. when they don't know anything about please, you and you please say that again when ignorance is mutual confidence is king meaning if they don't know anything about you and you don't know anything about them the person who steps in and acts the most confident will control the room so if i'm in a, a place where no one knows of me really and like their instructor likes me and they've invited me up but none of their fighters know much about me i will go into the room and project a lot of confidence and kind of dominate the room but not in an arrogant way but you know i won't go in and put my bag in the corner and look kind of shy i'll walk straight into the middle of the room put my bag in the middle of the room stand up tall i'll look around the room make eye contact with people say hey guys nice to nice to be here so you know project confidence and they all settle down really after that point because they're like martial artists we follow a leader and if you act like a leader in that type of space instantly we just all go yep yeah, okay he's the instructor and we they all settle down so i think people are not confident about, about teaching seminars it's almost it's not fake it till you make it but it's when ignorance is mutual, you both don't know anything about each other. Confidence is king. You will win the battle to control the room with your confidence. 
What do you? What advice do you give the the guy who's just starting a seminar or the guy who's been doing seminars for a little bit? What event, What advice do you give him when he meets somebody at one of his seminars that is just not following what is being taught, or because there's always that guy, you know? Okay, guys, everybody, jab, cross, uppercut, and then this guy's doing a spinning roundhouse. Yeah. Um, what do you deal? How do you deal with? Because that's the equivalent to like a heckler to a comedian. <laughs> how do you? How do you deal with that? Uh, what has been your experience with that uh, it happens in every seminar but i usually like i have a bit of a laugh with them I, I don't i don't take myself too seriously because i'm not trying to be the good thing about my what i do is as i hold pads so i don't have to be the baddest motherfucker in the room i don't need to be the toughest i don't need to be like the world champion i can hold pads really really well and i can teach you how to improve your pad work so there's i don't have to show up and act like you're like i'm a badass but if someone's doing something weird, I usually just have a laugh at them and say, what the hell are you doing? Are you doing? <laughs> and they're just like, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I try not to take it too seriously because it's probably not intentional. They're just doing what they want to do yeah. and, and getting on with it. So. And what do you do for the person that just can't get it? Like if you got everybody in the room doing something and you got, there's always the one, the ones that excel, yeah, the ones who are good, and then the ones that just cannot get it. And let's say, for example, I'll make this question a little bit more difficult for you. What if the one person just can't get it, but their partner is frustrated because they can? What advice would you give? So the way I teach, I teach in very small chunks. So if I'm teaching a combination, it will be like jab, then slip the cross, then hit the liver, then the hook and the cross in the end. And I'll, I won't teach the whole thing together because of that one person who's going to go like cross. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I sneak. So what basically happens is if the rest of the group is happy doing the full combination. I'll just say to that person, right, let's just focus on your jab and the slip and the cross. First two movements only, off you go. And I'll coach them and I'll make sure they're doing that right. So I make the chunk smaller for them. Um, so it, I teach in a way that means that anyone can get benefit from my sessions, whether they've been training a long time or it's their first sort of session. So that's the first thing. I know what you mean about the problem with the person working with them though, because you can often see they're getting frustrated and they're like, they're not happy. So I usually swap them around because there's usually not just one person who struggles. So there's usually a couple. So then I'll swap them around. I'll say, um, okay, you, so you two are going to switch partners and you two are going to work together. And then I have the two people who are not so experienced together, which is fine because they don't mind looking inexperienced in front of each other. And the two more comfortable people are doing their thing and having fun. So swap people around. It's kind of like the opposite of a classroom though, right? Because when you have, you know, traditionally when somebody new comes to the classroom, you'll pair them up with the senior student. So the senior student is kind of like your extra eyes or your assessor. You're like, hey, let me know what this person going. Go easy on them. Just show yeah. them the fundamentals. And so that person feels like they get a lot out of it. Even though you're working in a room, you come back to check. But at the seminar, it's like quite the opposite, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's, teaching seminars is a skill. It's not the same as teaching a class. It's, it's not the same skill. It's similar, but there's extra things you need to be able to do. You need to kind of communicate a little bit more enthusiastically than you would maybe with your class who know you. You need to project because usually there's more people in the seminar. Um, you need to move more because there's going to be more people that you have to move around. You need to organize your content in a way that's very easy to teach based on different levels or people who maybe never held a pair of pads in their lives and you've got to teach them like a fair bit of content um it's a different skill set yeah how do you feel about like dutch type drills where you're both wearing 
So do you no. incorporate a lot of that as well into your into Yeah, your and, and all of my Thai boxing products, there's Dutch drills included because it's a very efficient way of training um, with two people wearing gloves, you know, working one to one, um, back and forth on drills. It saves a lot of time in terms of training. Yeah. And, uh, and I find it, and it's very fluid and it works well. And Colt, from the JKD perspective, glove drills are a big deal. We do lots of glove drills, you know, triples and, and all sorts of stuff. So it was easy for me to add those types of techniques in. I always thought it would be, I always thought it was great because not like, even though people are holding pads, they're still working their timings or their catch and parries. Yeah. But that it doesn't really kind of like click to them until they put gloves on because now the, the reference or the context looks different. Yes. Really, they're building the same stuff at the same time. Um, what is your what is your next kind of goal for yourself? Uh, so you you know you you be, you've been the martial artist. You were the instructor. You were the gym owner. Now you're the you were the online content creator. Now you were the teaching other people to be online content creator. What's next for you? What are you into? What are you checking out now? Uh, I'm starting to get interested in AI and VR because I think it's going to be the next evolution of sort of online training, but also for martial arts. I think you know, in 50, 100 years, we're going to kind of either put on a pair of glasses and we'll be in the dojo with our instructor. So it will create this artificial reality position where we're actually training with our instructor in the dojo, but we're just wearing glasses, we're at home. So I'm starting to investigate that. So I'm ahead of the curve when it happens. I was actually approached by a company uh, in California that does that. And they're interested in having, uh, I'll share that um, information to you after because- Thank uh, you. Yeah, they're, uh, shit, I can't remember where it is, but it's somewhere uh, out in Cali. They already have something where you produce online material, people pay a subscription, but they also have, the, like you say, the VR stuff where they have you coaching them. Yes. It's crazy where it's going. Oh, it's great. Eventually we'll get to the matrix, you know, when they stick in a thing in the back of your head and then you well, maybe, this, maybe, we, maybe this is and we don't even know. But, uh, <laughs> what advice would you give um, what advice would you give somebody um, with, with regards to being an instructor who is really great at knowing the material, but is not great at presenting the material? Because there are those as well. Yeah. What would you recommend for these types of guys to kind of get themselves uh, better prepared to handle a larger crowd? Uh, practice and fail forward fast. So, um, in any area of life, I believe that you know failure is part of success, and you learn more from failure than you do from success. But what happens is with people, and especially martial artists, because we're stubborn when we're quite egotistical, is we'll fail at something, and then we'll back off, and we won't go back to it again for six months. And then we'll fail it, and then we'll go back off, and then we'll go back to it for a year, and it takes too long. So my whole thing is I fail forward very quickly. I'll do something, it won't work, and 10 minutes later, I'm trying a variation of it, or I'm trying a new way of doing it, and I quickly fail until I get to success. So the best way of um, learning how to coach and teach is to coach and teach. So obviously help your instructor out, assist them in class, start to take the beginners, start to build up your confidence, but then also watch and model people who are successful. So, you know, if you go to seminars and you see someone like Bill Wallace, I don't know if you've been to a Bill Wallace seminar, but he is a fantastic presenter, coach. He's really funny super, he tells great jokes super foot right yeah super foot he's really relaxed when he teaches he's got great eye for detail and he breaks things down in a way that i've not seen before 
So I would model that. I would, I would go to seminars and I'd see, you know, how Bill Wallace teaches and I'd see how Guru Dan teaches and I'd see how Eric Bolson teaches. And I'd take the best bits or the bits that I liked, model them, test them, and then it became part of how I coach and teach. So I think practice, repetition and practice, it's all about repetition and practice in the end, but also modeling people who are very, very successful or who you want to, you know, mirror um, helps as well. And also doing some training, things like NLP really help with understanding how human beings interact uh, and doing some online training on presentation and, and coaching. And just the whole thing about ignorance is mutual. If you act confident, most people will defer to your confidence because it's human nature. It's the status superiority thing, you know, it's the whole tribe group thing that if you act the most confident in a group, people just go leader and they follow. Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. And what's very important too is once you gain that trust uh, and that title is what you do with it because some people will use it to their advantage, whereas yeah. others use it to really build up. The, the next crop of guys do you have yeah. sorry go ahead there is there is a dark side to martial arts i would say where people um i've spoke about this on another podcast but i think it's mentioned worth mentioning here i think people get into martial arts because they're broken in some sort of way they're, they're they something's happened in their life which has knocked their confidence or their self-belief or self-esteem or they feel like they need to be more or they have a fear so I think the motivation for a lot of people to get into martial arts is, is like from the dark side, from the negative side. And then if you don't take care of it as you start becoming a, a student and then an instructor, that dark side will manifest in a different way later on. So you can become you know, overly controlling of your students, you can become abusive of the power. And being a martial arts instructor is very, very addictive because essentially people just bow down before you. And they literally bow before you and that's you know being honest that's a big rush for like if you're 20 years old and you have a load of full-grown adults all bowing at you and calling you sensei and you know um putting their hand up before they speak and all of this sort of stuff it can take you on a dark path where you you know you start getting addicted to that power you start manipulating it and we all know like we've had instructors over the years who have abuse that power and it's you know turned into very negative situations so i think you know we have to be self-conscious when we when we build this instructor and and um your goal always should be to help people not to hurt people and, and do the best for your students at all times as an experienced coach what are some red flags that you would advise the student to look out for for these types of people would use it? Well, it's funny that, because one of my very first instructors, I went to train with him and he was really good. And then he said to me, uh, I said, oh, I'm thinking of going up to London to train at a seminar with so-and-so, unrelated. And he was like, you must not do that. You must not train with anyone else ever. You only train with me. First so I think that's, yeah. <laughs> so, I think, so I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So we had a big row in front of his whole school. And I was only about, eight 17 18 at this point so it was, it was quite yeah. for me but i was like well no you're not going to control me so i think control uh, or an, uh, an over 
controlling nature is something as a is a red flag. You know, um, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to go and train with this person. You're not allowed to see this person. You shouldn't study this stuff. You shouldn't go on YouTube. Like this control, 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 control thing. Um, I think it's the major red flag um, in most martial arts. Because the problem is though, because martial arts traditionally come from the Far East control is inbuilt within martial arts because of where they come from it's hierarchy yeah it's the respect for the hierarchy and the incentive and you never question them you never disagree with them you never do anything they don't want you to do but we live in the west and i'm not sure that's really the way it should be in the west for people especially when grown adults are paying money to you to teach them martial arts and you're restricting their their options so yeah it's a tricky one yeah, I mean, I've been kicked out of many schools uh, because you called it a seminar whore. I was a dojo whore, and uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I was I was uh, training um, Mopai Kempo. I was there for years, but low key, I was like going to check out a jujitsu club or because, like I said, I used to go to throwdowns and, and like scrap other guys from other arts, and I got destroyed by Muay Thai guys. Like, okay, I got to learn Muay Thai. There's just yeah. there's no ifs ands or buts about it. Like, those are things that have to happen. In your development right and, yes absolutely uh, and so a good instructor should understand that you know and and when i met joey he was like the first guy that i was like hey do i call you sifu he's like sure if you want <laughs> yeah if you want my name's joey you know call me joey and i just was like it was you know it was so different it was so different than what i was used to you know like uh he would talk to me like a regular guy when it came to work we do work but it was never like he never talked about what you know his i had to f i found out by looking online what this guy's uh credentials were but he yeah. never flashed it he never it was just a totally different experience and because i was aware of all the shit that he went through and the difficulties he went through and that he wasn't per like and he'd tell you yeah i'm not so good at this you might want to check this guy out for that like that was just like i can respect that because i know you're not lying and yeah. when somebody makes everything seem easy, well, that doesn't make me admire you. What makes me admire you is when you do shit that's hard and still get it done. You yeah. I mean? So I think, yeah, that's something I look for uh, right away in an instructor. Same um, here. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, just being a human being, really, and not hiding behind the, the titles that you've got or, or you know, the successes you've had. Just, just being a natural human being and, and caring about your students. Yeah, I think that's what it boils down to. So I'm going to definitely, uh, I'm going to check out, I want to actually purchase uh, one of your, uh, I don't know how many you have, but I want to get your uh, MMA uh, syllabus there. Cool. Uh, I'd like Thank to see you. stuff on the ground. I recommend anybody who's looking for some diverse and really, really good, um, really good pad work material, definitely check out Midmaster. I think it's absolutely brilliant how you have so many different ones and really they just, they can interclick with each other. Um, thank you so much for, for doing this. Hopefully we can have you again sometime. If there's That'd anything, awesome. if there's anything else you want to add or say to the people hearing before, uh, before I wrap it up, please, please feel free to, to, to say what you need to say or what you'd like to say. Well, I'd like to thank you for inviting me on. It's been a nice chat. It's really nice chatting with you. You've got a really uh, nice way of presenting and it's really relaxed and natural. And, you know, sometimes I've been on podcasts, they've been a bit, um, stilted and a bit, Bit, bit difficult but your way of presenting is awesome oh, so I, just, I just want to say thank you to you for inviting you. me on 
Usually I have a drink, but I figured I wouldn't, uh, you know, be drinking the first time around talking in case I start slurring my words. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, man, listen, I really appreciate uh, appreciate your hard work. Your generosity to the martial arts community is fantastic. Um, full disclosure, man, like you once I did the first time I stepped out of my shell and did that uh, with Aperture University, uh, JKD, yeah. you were the first person I sent it to and said, hey, man, please check this out and uh, please be honest with me. So I appreciate it. Um, I, I love how you put your stuff together and it inspires me to want to put more stuff out there. Uh, the only thing, the only thing is with a guy like me is like, man, I've seen this done before. Why does somebody want to buy it? If I do it, you that's know, a great we, question. Let me answer that before we finish. Yeah, absolutely. They're buying your presentation, your personality, your passion for it, which is different than someone else's. So they're not buying the techniques per se, like, you know, how many thousands of JKD instructors a teacher packs out, right? But they're, te they're buying how you have developed yourself, how you present the information, your personality, um, the way your passion for what you teach. So it's not, it's not so much the techniques they're buying, it's the presentation and the personality and the passion for what you're doing that they're buying. And to be honest, like jujitsu, you know, I, I'm, I um, have bought Marcelo Garcia's online instruction, but I've also bought Hodger Gracie's online instruction because they're both world-class teachers, but I wanted to see a different, slightly different approach in the way of explaining the techniques and uh, personality coming from coming through. And if you look at like, to take an example that makes sense for a lot of people, if you see like John Danaher yes. versus Enzo Gracie, they teach in the same school or they taught in the same school. They, you know, um, Henzo's got a different personality from John, John Danaher, right? Henzo's really exuberant and excitable and very expressive and like he's full of passion and he's energetic. John Danaher's really cerebral and slow and thoughtful. He scares but the shit out of me. I'm around for both of them. Yeah, he scares so, the shit out of me. Does he? He's just the way he talks. He's like, he's like, a, he's like, he's a serial killer. He's like a cyborg, yeah. He's like a cyborg, you know. He's like he's like an AI, AI jujitsu. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's crazy. He's awesome. He's a great coach, but and I like his approach, but sometimes it's a bit slow, and I prefer maybe the way Henzo teaches, which is faster, more uh, energetic, and, and exciting. That's a good point. I never really thought about it. It's not just the what material you're sharing, but it's how you share it and making the connection with a certain type of viewer. That, that makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. And what I want to—I know we're running out of time, but I want to say. No, no, I, I honestly, I, this is not recorded. Like this is recorded, it's not live. I can edit this out. I just okay. don't want to take too much of your time. No, no, it's, it's good. But what I would say is, there is, there are people out there who will only resonate with your voice, and you want to think about that. It's like there are thousands of martial arts instructors out there, hundreds of thousands in the world. But there are people out there who are only going to resonate with how you present the information and you're going to do them a disservice if you don't put your heart into it and create content that they 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 see you and they just go ah oh, that's it i got it you know the way mark teaches it totally understand it now so you have to put yourself out there it's a responsibility to put yourself out there yeah i appreciate those words because the, that is something that i i will think about more often and it again it's the simple little simple little things but those simple little things sometimes we don't realize that that's the key right that's it really right is, it really is developing the presentation just like a comedian right you can tell the same joke but if you have the punchline down and it makes people laugh it makes people laugh and if you don't have it if it's dry it might not that's a great thing for any instructor to be thinking about at any level
Anyway, once again, Mr. Matthew Chapman, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your help to the community. And I look forward to, to talking with you again soon and training some of your material. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much.